Let's turn now to several portions of Scripture that illustrate the doctrine of the Trinity from the New Testament. First is Mark 1, 9 through 11. 9 through 11. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven, saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then Matthew 28, the famous passage of the Great Commission, just a few pages before. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. And then a longer passage, which is uh, filled with Trinitarian material, John 14. John 14. We'll read 15 through the end. If ye love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Ye have heard now I said unto you, you have heard how I said unto you, I go away. And come again unto you. If ye love me, ye would rejoice, because I said I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it come to pass, that when it is come to pass, ye might believe. Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the Prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father. And as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. And then finally, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, 
and the God of love and peace shall be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints salute you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. May God bless the reading of his Trinitarian word. This morning we remember in addition to those listed in the bulletin, uh, Paxton Lines, who fell and fractured his foot in more than one place and will undergo surgery on it on Tuesday. And also David Inglesma, former elementary school principal that you know, uh, is in the hospital, not doing, not doing well, weak and, and very frail complications. Dear church family, when I was a, a boy, my dad taught a catechism class on Saturday morning in Kalamazoo for children under 10. And I would drive with him on Saturday mornings to that class, and he'd talk to me on the way about the Lord. And one day, he talked to me about the Trinity. And he said to me, would you pray for me today? Because this is the hardest lesson for me to teach. And I was nine years old, I think. And it stuck in my mind. My dad had a hard time talking about God. Why would that be such a hard lesson? So I asked him that. And all he said to me was, when you're older, you'll understand. Martin Luther called the doctrine of the Trinity the comprehensive, incomprehensible, yet comprehensible, God. No doctrine should be of greater interest to us if we're Christians. We want to know our God. But the paradox is, though we can know Him in His triune existence sufficient for our salvation... We can never know him completely, not even in eternity, because he is God. If we knew him completely, we would be God. And so there's something glorious, there's something overwhelming, there's something majestic, something that ought to move us to reverence and to worship. And to bow in the dust. To take our shoes from off our feet. For the place whereon we stand is holy ground. When we come to talk about holy trinity. And so I feel this morning the way, same way my dad felt. This is an overwhelming Subject to preach on. And yet, so beautiful. So glorious. And if you're a believer, you can identify with me, can't you? You want to know the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit better. But you say to yourself, don't you, even this morning, I just know so little of each of these three persons of the Trinity. And yet this doctrine is the framework and the foundation of all that we believe. It's the framework also of the Apostles' Creed that we ended with last last, week or two ago on Lord's Day 7. And so it's the framework and the foundation for Lord's Days 8 through 23 as we look at all the material in the Apostles' Creed, the basics of the Christian faith. And it is good, as Peter said, 
to go back again and again to the basics of the Christian faith. So this morning, we want to look with you at this uh, overwhelming and yet consoling doctrine of our glorious Trinity. And we'll do that from several texts. I read to you Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Also Mark 1, 9 through 11. And 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. I'll just read that last verse again. But we'll look at some other texts as well. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. And then Lord's Day 8 of our Heidelberg Catechism, where we read the following in questions 24 and 25. How are these articles, that is the articles of the Apostles' Creed, divided into three parts? The first is of God the Father and our creation. The second of God the Son and our redemption. The third of God the Holy Ghost and our sanctification. 25. Since then there is but one only divine essence. Why speakest thou of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost? Because God has so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one only true and eternal God. So with God's help, our theme then this morning is our glorious trinity. And I first want to look at it with you, intimated in the Old Testament, then presupposed in the New, then explained in church history, church doctrine, and then experienced in personal communion. The doctrine of the Trinity brings together two distinct strands of biblical teaching. Strands that at first seem very incompatible. On the one hand, the Bible emphasizes that God is one. God is one. He's a unity. On the other hand, it emphasizes that God is a plurality. At one level it says there's but one God. At another level it says there's more than one person entitled to the designation God. Namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so the doctrine of the Trinity is designed to take these two seemingly incompatible strands and to weave them together into one unified view. Tri-unity is abbreviated into the word trinity. Three in one into the word trinity. So God is one, that's the gist of Lord's Day 8, that in that unity there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as question 25 says so clearly. These three distinct persons are the one only true and eternal God. Now, this becomes a bit more complicated when you stop to consider that the word Trinity is not used in the Bible. But in itself, that shouldn't bother us because many biblical teachings, we glean from all the Scripture and we bring it together and the Holy Spirit leading the church through church history brings in new words to describe it so we can comprehend more fully what the whole of Scripture is saying about a particular truth. So the fact that we use a word like Trinity or persons referring to the Godhead or essence or substance ought not trouble us. The question we need to ask is, is it, is it biblical? And of course, I hope I'm speaking to the choir here today in that way that we all, would all believe that. In fact, our forefathers said, if you don't believe the doctrine of the Trinity, you can't even be a Christian. Believing 
in the Trinity is the unique distinctive of what it means to be a Christian. There's no other religion in the world that believes in a three-in-one God. Either they believe in one God, like Judaism or Islam, or they believe in many gods called polytheism and worship all kinds of gods. But Christianity is unique. But the real question then is, where do we find this in the Bible? And we need to look at that. We need to look at it first in the Old Testament, where it is more intimated, implied, hinted at. And then in the New Testament, where it is more expressly declared. So let's first look at the Trinity in the Old Testament. Now the main burden of the Old Testament in relationship to God is to convince us that God is one. And why is that? Well, because Israel was surrounded with all kinds of polytheistic religions. In fact, at that time, Israel was the only nation in the entire world that believed in one God. In fact, the common conviction of the people of the ancient world was that gods were local deities. Every little area had their own god. Thousands of little gods. And sometimes people had, in their own religion, dozens of different gods. So gods, plural, was the common concept in the mind of the people. But Israel declared something just audacious, something bold, something that bothered people of other nations, that their God was the only God, and that all the other gods of the world didn't exist, and that their God was God of heaven and of earth. And that made some nations very upset with Israel, made them want to war against Israel, but also made them afraid of Israel. You read that often, don't you, like of the Philistines. They were afraid of, of the ark of Israel's God because Israel was claiming something unheard of. There's one God over all the world. We, of course, take that for granted. But you see, this context teaches us that the emphasis for the oneness of God was very, very heavy emphasis in Old Testament times. In fact, the famous text, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, for the Lord your God is one God. The great Shema, it's called uh, by scholars. That is fundamental to the entire Hebraic Old Testament religion. One God. Now, in the Old Testament, however, though that is the primary emphasis, there are intimations that this one God existed in three persons. Let me just walk you through a few of them very, very briefly. First of all, the very name Elohim in Hebrew, which is used already in chapter 1 of, of the Bible, is actually a plural form of God. El, just E-L, is the word translated just for God singular. Elohim, however, is plural. And that's the form used by uh, many of the references from Genesis 1 onward. In fact, it's used hundreds of times in the Old Testament. Now, the interesting thing is that whenever that word is used, which you would translate really gods, even though there's not gods, there's only one God, a singular verb is used to illustrate that though God is a plurality, He is yet one. So if you translate it literally, the God's is, which makes no sense in English, a plural with a singular. But that's what it is in Hebrew. You see, God's is or God's does. And this is simply 
not an explicit teaching of the Trinity, because it doesn't say Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but it's a foreshadowing of the clarity of the New Testament teaching. Now, some scholars say this is simply a plural majesty, like a king saying we, because he's got all these courtiers with him and the nation behind him. It's a, it's a majestic plural. Well, that's a bit of a weak argument. There's no proof. Nowhere in the Old Testament is king's plurality majesty used of earthly kings. So why would it be of the divine? Other scholars say, and maybe with a little bit more truth to it, that it's a plural of intensity. Intensity. What does that mean? Well, it means that, if I can say it this way, all the godness of God is, is, is packed into God. And it's so intense that the plural form is used because God is so big, God is so expansive that the plural form is taken up even though He's only one God. Well, that may or may not be true. But one thing we know, one thing we know is that this concentration of godness in God is not negating that God is Father and Son and Holy Spirit. So this too doesn't mean that this is... You can't point to Elohim and say, oh, you see, there is the Trinity. Because it's not that clear yet. At the beginning, God's revelation of Himself in the Bible is, is gradual. But knowing what we know from the New Testament the clear teaching of the Trinity, we can now look back at Genesis 1 and say, yes, our God is a three-in-one God. He's a plurality in unity. And even His name is at least a foreshadowing or a reflection of that. The second reference is also in Genesis 1. Let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our image. Again, this reflects the more than oneness that lies at the very heart of deity. Now, some scholars say what this means is that God was talking to the angels. Let us make man in our image. But that can't be because we're not made in the image of angels. This, you see, appears to be, at least, the persons of the Trinity speaking, as it were, collectively, let us make man in our image, in the image of God, the, the plural yet united Jehovah. And then, of course, later on in the Old Testament, we have another intimation of, of a plurality in the Godhead through the angel of the covenant, which is said to be God. And we know, of course, that the, also from the book of Hebrews, that this angel is the particular messenger of God, who's the son of God, who's the great high priest of all high priests, who is God himself, identical with God. And then there's the repeated Old Testament emphasis on the advent of a coming divine Messiah, a divine Messiah, which indicates in so many passages, hundreds of them, that the Father is not only God, but the Son is God as well. Malachi, for example, describes the forerunner of the Messiah as the forerunner of the Lord. Jesus, He calls Jesus the Lord. In Psalm 45, the Messiah is addressed as God. In Isaiah 9, verse 6, He's called the Mighty God. And then, finally, just to mention one more, the Holy Spirit intimates plurality in God's personality when the Spirit is described as a distinct person in the Old Testament. Isaiah forty-eight sixteen, the Lord God and His Spirit has sent me. Isaiah 61, 1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. You see, 
or they vexed his Holy Spirit, Isaiah 63.10. You can't vex an it. You can't vex a, a force, a power. David says in Psalm 51, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. So all of these things are, are intimations that there is a trinity. There is a plurality in this unity. Now, that leads us to two conclusions about the Old Testament teaching of Trinity. The first is this. No religion, no religion ever came to a knowledge of a formal doctrine of the triune God just from Old Testament teaching. You see, the intimations are there, but the clarity is not there. And that's why today, if you talk to uh, people who embrace Judaism, who believe in the Old Testament, not the New, many of the Jews, or you talk to uh, a Muslim, then they will fight might and main, might and main, against this doctrine of plurality in unity. And they'll, they'll call Christians polytheists because they say, you teach three gods. We say, no, we don't teach three gods. One god, but three in person. And they can't grasp that. Well, we can't grasp it fully either. But it's what the Bible reveals, you see. I was on a train once in, uh, going from Glasgow to Edinburgh, Scotland. And uh, my two traveling partners in, in the train booth I was at, in the car I was in, one was a Muslim and one was an atheist. And as long as I talked about God and the need to know God, the Muslim was with me. And we were both talking to the atheist. But as soon as I talked about Jesus, suddenly the Muslim switched sides and the Muslim and the atheist were both challenging me. You see, only Christianity believes in a triune God. Now, we argue as Christians that this is not an impoverishment of God. This is not taking God down a step, so to speak, by teaching He's, got, he's three in person, but actually an enriching of the glorious infinity and incomprehensibility of God. See, one of the problems of monotheism, when you believe in only one God, is that that God has no one to relate to from all eternity. No one to relate to. But in a Christian religion, it's so different, you see. There's a Father, there's a Son, there's a Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal. And so the triune God has always loved each of the persons in the Trinity. The Father's always loved the Son and Spirit. Son's always loved the Father and Spirit. Spirit's always loved the Father and the Son. And so within Himself, God has always had that, for lack of a better word, personality of fellowship and community and the possibility of love. And when you're a monotheistic religion, you, you, you don't have that. A Muslim, for example, will never, never call upon his God, Allah, the solitary God, as Father. That would be an insult. You see, God doesn't have the warmth, the personality of, of warm communion that the Christian religion has in its God because Jesus became bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh and assumed his humanity to his deity. And so God can relate to us in ways that Allah never can. So, you can only be a person if there is some other person to relate to. Someone to be with, or someone to be beside, or someone to talk to, or someone to love. So the idea then of God as triune does not complicate the idea of God's unity so much as it enriches it. And that's why the whole concept of family here on earth, church family, being united as we've experienced especially recently with the loss of Jordan Camp. It's like we, were one, we are one unity, yet in the midst of diversity of family. 
Or take the, the, the individual nuclear family, your own personal family. The whole concept of, of, a, of a father and um, a son, you see, the concept of that family idea resides within the God in itself. You're not calling God Father because God is trying just to relate to us and what fatherhood on earth is, but your fatherhood, men, here on earth, is a faint shadow of the ultimate fatherhood of God in heaven. And so, you see, the doctrine of the Trinity is so much richer, so much more familial than the doctrine of a solitary Allah type of God. So that's the first thing. The second thing I want to say, last thing I want to say about the Old Testament, is that B.B. Warfield, who was a theologian at Princeton, a great one, by the way, he said the doctrine of the Trinity is there, but in kind of shadowy form in the Old Testament. It's developing, as it were. God is unveiling it bit by bit, and the light is getting a bit more and more as he unveils things about Jesus and about the Holy Spirit. So he said, it's like going into an unlit room. It's all there. All the furniture, so to speak, of the doctrine of the Trinity is there in that room in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, what happens is God flicks the light, turns on the light, and now it becomes very clear indeed. So let's ask the question now about the New Testament. The New Testament. Well, a few thoughts first here. First of all, the revelation of the Trinity is closely related with the experience of salvation in the New Testament. When you think of the doctrine of the Trinity, you think of the generation of the Son, you think of the procession of the Spirit from the Father and the Son. These words are very difficult to grasp. But when you think of the work of the triune God, the individual emphasis on the task of the triune God, then you see we can get a handle on it much better, much easier. In English, theologians call this the divine economy of the Trinity. Each person has its own task in the Trinity. Father is especially the one who elects. The Son is especially the one who redeems with His blood. The Spirit is especially the one who sanctifies. Or as the old divines used to say, the Father bought, thought salvation. The Son bought it and the Spirit wrought it. There's a harmony between the three. Personally, I, I don't think the word economy is the best word, but we're stuck with it in English. The Dutch word is actually better, I think. It's heisheidelijk. It's In English, that's household, the divine household. So think of it this way. In your home, everyone has a certain task. Uh, let's just take a simple task, say taking out the garbage. Uh, maybe, maybe one of you, that that's your primary task. But you don't always do it. Maybe someone else in the household does it once in a while. But it's your primary task. Well, that's under your category. And you see, in the Trinity, it's sort of like that. The Son's involved in the election. The Spirit's involved in the election. But it's primarily attributed in the Bible to the Father. And so, I often quote to you what Samuel Rutherford said, I don't know which divine person I, I, I love the most, but this I know, I love each of them and I need them all. We need all of them, all three of them. For our salvation. We need the Father to elect us. We need the Son to redeem us. We need the Spirit to apply it to us. So, as the New Testament unveils the doctrine of the Trinity, it does so mostly in terms of this household concept, this economy concept. What is the work of the different persons of the Trinity? The Son died on the cross. The Father And the Spirit didn't die on the cross. That was the Son's exclusive work in that case. 
The Son returns to the Father in ascension, not the Spirit. You see, each person has their own task to complete in the doctrine of our salvation. Now, the second thing you need to notice about the New Testament teaching of Trinity is an important thing. The doctrine of the Trinity is not proven as if it needs to be proven, but it's presupposed. It's like the light goes on, and now the New Testament just presupposes that everyone knows the Spirit is God and Jesus is God. It's simply suddenly there, without controversy. Salvation is of the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, over and over again. And so you can get Texts like 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God that is God the Father and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. All three co-equal. All three having a role to play in our salvation. And thirdly, no New Testament writer seems to give us the idea that the doctrine of the Trinity is their own innovation their own thought that they've just come up with. It's just presupposed that this is the way it is. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, James, Paul, they were all brought up and reared in a Jewish world. But suddenly they're all speaking of Jesus Christ as God. And they're speaking of the Holy Spirit as God. That's why all throughout the book of Acts, as we've seen recently in the series that Dr. Kivenholm has preached, Paul is constantly getting into trouble in different places because he's preaching Jesus is God, the resurrected one. And, 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 and the Jews couldn't handle that plurality in the Godhead. But Paul is saying over and over again, this is just the way it is. I'm, this isn't my teaching. This is the Lord's teaching. This is Jesus' teaching, and He is God. And then the fourth point is this. In the New Testament, we don't have that vocabulary that has become technical now in church history, like Trinity, essence, being, substance, and so on. But please understand, these words, this is a perfect example of how these words have grown in church history under the tutelage of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes people say, even in our church sometimes I've heard it said, well, all you need is the Bible. Well, sola scriptura. Yeah, sola scriptura. We go by the Bible alone. But the Holy Spirit has also shed light in church history on the Bible so that different doctrines have developed, like the Trinity, in church history that give clarity on the Word. So it's important to understand that, that the Spirit sheds light in church history as well. And that's particularly true of this doctrine. Well, let me look at just a few texts in the New Testament here that show you that with clarity the doctrine of the Trinity, much brighter than in the Old Testament. The first is Luke 1. Verses 26 to 38, you know, the whole story about the angel coming to Mary. It says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow thee. So the Holy One born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Oh, right there you have it, don't you? The Most High, that is the Father. The Spirit will come upon you. That's the Spirit of the Most High. And the Son of the Most High. All three persons are captured under this theme of the Most High God. Then secondly, you find the same thing in the baptism story of Jesus in Mark 1. And we read that to you. The Spirit descends in the form of a dove. The Father speaks from heaven. And the voice says, Thou art my beloved Son, deity of Jesus, in whom I am well pleased. So there again, you've got three persons in the one Godhead. Now that becomes even more explicit in the most familiar passage of all in the Great Commission, 
Go and make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, baptizing them in the name, not names, plural, not three gods, in the name of the one God, who nevertheless is three in persons, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's why when we baptize a baby, we don't say, in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, as if there's three different persons. But we say, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Three in one. And then, there is, of course, this text that I read to you also at the beginning of the sermon, 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen, that we use every Lord's Day as a benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. This is a formal benediction Paul's pronouncing on the church of Corinth. And notice there's equality. Even though we sometimes say the Father's the first person, the Son's the second person, the Holy Spirit's the third person of the Trinity, we don't mean by that that it's like this, one, two, three, But one, two, three, they are all equal, you see. And sometimes the Bible even turns that order around to show us the equality of the three. You find that in this text, don't you? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, as God, is mentioned first. And then the love of God, the Father. And then the communion of the Holy Ghost. So it's like two, one, three. Just to stress with us, all three are co-equal and co-eternal. Now, in church history, you see, this doctrine is developed, and it was settled first in the Nicene Creed in 325, which we often read in this church, and then it was also determined to have a fine-tuned distinction about how Jesus could be both God and man in 381 in the council to proclaim there the deity of the Holy Spirit as, as well. So in these 4th century councils, what happened was there were lots of debates. And Arius, for example was a heretic who said, the Son of God, Jesus, is not exactly like God. He's homousius. That is, he's of a similar substance to God. Athanasius comes along and says, absolutely not, that's heresy. And the church studied this in great depth in the Scripture. And Athanasius said, Jesus is homoousius, just one extra O in there, which means he's the same substance of the Father. He's one with the Father. And you see, that's what the church embraced under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and that salvaged the entire doctrine of the Trinity. But at the same time, Athanasius said, this one being consists of three persons. And so later on, you have the Athanasian Creed being developed in honor of Athanasius. It was called by his name, saying that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. And we read that also in our church. And remember how many times it repeats it? The Father is this, the Son is this. All of those repetitions in the Athanasian Creed are born out of controversy in church history and confirming the persons of the Trinity that are revealed in these New Testament scriptural texts. Now, all of this is to teach us that the Trinity is in unity and is to be worshipped, is to be worshipped. So when we worship God, you see, we worship threeness in oneness. God is not three faces of the same God, like Sibelius taught. Like you just turn this way, and this way, and this way. So like on Mount Rushmore, you see faces from different directions. No, God is three distinct persons, but in one Godhead. So there's nothing from nature. 
There's nothing in our sensory experience in this world that can compare to this glorious doctrine of Trinity. It is above us. It is beyond us. It is glorious. We are to believe it. We are to embrace it. And we are to worship each one of the three persons in the Trinity. And we are to love them all. For we need them all. And each one is a treasure to us. And so when God begins to work in the hearts of His people, that's exactly what happens. We begin to know in sweet personal communion with God this doctrine of the Trinity. Just begin to know in the experience of our own soul. And that is the most precious sweetest truth you can ever experience. Now, the Puritan John Owen wrote an entire book. It's about 450 pages, volume two of his works, on distinct communion with each person of the Trinity. This is a very important book in church history. And it reflects the experience of God's people in coming to know each person of the Trinity. And Owen uses as his paradigm for this book, his, the framework for the book, this text in 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen: The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. And what he's saying and which bears itself out in the experience of God's people, is that this is the kind of thing that God's people experience. Not that you just experience distinct communion with one person and the other two aren't involved at all, but that there is a sweetness in Christian experience of getting to know some of these emphases within each person. Let me give you a real quick example. There are some doctrines that involve all three persons of the Trinity in peculiar ways. Just take the doctrine of prayer. Who decrees that you're going to truly pray? Well, the Father. He decreed that from all eternity. You can never pray on your own in truth. Who has merited the right for you to pray to God through His name? And who prays for you, intercedes for you, that you may have His Spirit to pray, the Son of God. And who indwells you to groan within you groanings that are unutterable, so that you do truly pray to God? Well, the Holy Spirit. So that that prayer goes back up through the Son, who sprinkles it with His own merits and presents it acceptable to the Father. So true prayer comes from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, back up through the Son to the Father. It's like a golden necklace. It's a beautiful truth. And you see, when you understand that, that gives a sweetness to your whole prayer life that you wouldn't have if you didn't understand that. And so, what we need to learn to do, Owen is saying, is to appreciate the different emphases of each person of the Trinity and to commune with them in those particular emphases. So normally when we go to God in prayer, we just say, Lord, this or that. And we, we really mean all three persons. And that's the normal default position, I would say, in prayer. But sometimes you can pray to one of the persons of the Trinity, when, particularly when it's their particular area of work. So let's say today you just feel really listless in prayer. and You just can't store yourself up to pray. What should you do? Well, ask God. Ask God to move you to prayer. Yes, that would be fine. But also you could get more specific and say, Spirit of God, who groans within the children of God, true prayers, groan within me now and stir me up within me. Indwelling Spirit, stir me up to true prayer. And in this way, you see, John Owen would say, there is communion with different, the different persons of the Trinity. 
So let's look at this very briefly in the small time we have remaining. First, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the special characteristic of fellowship with Christ is grace. Grace, received by faith. You see, of His fullness, John 1.16 says, of Jesus' fullness have we all received, and that grace for grace, literally grace laminated or glued to grace, or grace on top of grace, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, all the lifetime of a believer. The characteristic of the work of Jesus is to give us grace. And Jesus woos us and wins us in our soul, in sweet communion with Him, we the bride, He the bridegroom, by drawing us by grace unto Himself. John 1 puts it this way, Jesus draws us by grace to Himself to receive and embrace and submit to Him as our husband, our Lord, our Savior, to abide with Him, to subject our souls to Him, and to be ruled by Him forever. So the pattern here, of course, is Ephesians 5. Just as a wife submits herself to her own husband and to his grace shown to her in loving her, so the bride of Jesus submits herself to the lordship of Jesus, the perfect husband, the elder brother, the glorious redeemer, submits to his gracious love to her. That is, to you as a believer. And so when you come to know Jesus personally, you willingly submit to him as this wonderful, alluring, receiving, embracing husband as prophet, priest, and king to guide you in all your ways and to meet all your needs. And so Jesus, you see, becomes everything to you, all and in all. And you say, Lord Jesus Christ, we would have thee and no other. Thou art the chief among 10,000. Thou art altogether lovely. And the more we know of that in our soul, the more we know of that sweet communion of the bride to our bridegroom, like the Song of Solomon illustrates so powerfully, the more precious Jesus becomes as our Savior, our Lord, our nearest kinsman, our, greatest, our greater Boaz, are all in and all. And so through adoption into God's family, for the sake of Jesus' blood, and based on Jesus' intercessions, we as believers, by grace, commune with Christ as our elder brother, as well as by our Savior, as our Savior and Lord. And now Jesus himself, under the Spirit's influence, of course, moves us through himself to fall in love more and more with his Father. So that we don't only learn experientially the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we also learn to know the love of God the Father. As Paul puts it here, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God. The the implication here is the love of God the Father. The Father loves His own with the same love with which the Son loves His own. The Son is not more willing to save them than the Father. The Father has determined their salvation in the Son, so the Father loves them with unspeakable love. The Father Himself loveth you, Jesus said, John 16, verse 27. So the way to exercise communion distinctly with the Father is to receive His love by faith through Christ and return that love to Him. So that as we rest in the bosom of the Father through Christ, Christ returns the Father's love in His heart to us And so we love the Father by resting in His Son, by delighting in the Father Himself, by reverencing His Word, and by obeying His law. Owen puts it this way, we return love to the Father when we rest in Him, 
delight in him, reverence him, and obey him. And the more we know of that, the more we know of coming to the Father through the Son, and not shallowly calling him Father like so many do today, but calling him Father with reverence and through personal communion with him, and return love to him that he pours out upon us through his Son, the more we will come to treasure the Father. In fact, the more obstacles we feel in communion with God, things that stand in the way, our sin, our unbelief, our, our coldness, our hardness, the more we should make use of God in his fatherhood. Because it's the nature of a father to want to receive his child and to assure his child of his love. A child should always be able to go to his father and feel the love of the father. And so the believer must not invert God's order of love and think, well, I've got to love him first so that he can love me. No, no, no. We love him because he first loved us. So we return to the Father, you see, the love that the Father bestows upon us. And we, we, we do our souls good when we meditate on the Father's love to us in Christ. And remember that the cross of Christ is a sign and seal of the Father's love, assuring us that the Father's love will win our love through the Mediator. So it's through Jesus that we get the assurance of the Father's love. But then, there's also the fellowship with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit communes with us in, in several ways. He helps us remember the words of Christ, Jesus says. He takes the things of Jesus and he, he shows us. He, through the preaching, through reading the Word, through, through the printed page of the Word of God, He shows us the things of Christ and glorifies Christ in us. So these things of Jesus become precious to us. And then He spreads that love of the Father and of the Son in our hearts. And manifest the Father and the Son in us. So as Jesus says in John 14, that the Father and the Son indwell us by the Spirit. And so he convinces us that we are children of God. Not because we're so good or we're so converted, but because the basic marks of grace are in us. We do hunger and thirst after righteousness. We do mourn over sin. We do know what it means to become spiritually poor. We do love the brethren. These are marks of grace. John gives 11 of them in the first John. It's called the book of assurance. We get our assurance by trusting in God's promises. Yes. But also by the Spirit's witness. Romans 8.16. The Spirit's witness in our soul. With our conscience. That we are the children of God. So the Spirit indwells me. He anoints me with His saving work, leads me to Christ, assures me that I belong to Christ and through Him am adopted by God the Father into the family of God. And He teaches me then to pray in sweet communion to this triune God. And the more I know experientially in my soul of this Son, this Father, and this Spirit, the grace of the Son, the love of the Father, and the communion with the Holy Spirit, the more precious God is to us. And the more we look forward to that day when we shall spend all eternity getting to know Him better and better and better. Oh, for endless face-to-face communion with the triune God, my Father and my Son and my Spirit out of amazing grace.
grace. So communion, communion with the living triune God is the apex fruit of the gospel, the consummate fruit of the gospel. I am adopted into the family of God. And the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, I can say of all three persons in one unity, my Lord and my God. As David Clarkson, another Puritan, writes, he that has communion with God is in heaven while he is on earth. This is the gate of paradise. It puts us already here now into the suburbs of heaven. But one day, dear child of God, you will come, you will come into the very center, Revelation 21 and 22, of the new Jerusalem. And you will come to that multitude around the throne of the Lamb that will commune with Him and gaze upon Him face to face forever. Do you believe that? It seems too good to be true, doesn't it? And words fail us. Words fail us. Hell-worthy sinners communing with the spotless triune God That's the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel. Through the Holy Spirit, that's possible. Because of the merits of the Son, because of the electing love of the Father. Because of that, it's not only possible, but it's sure. It's sure. Now, does that mean that every child of God can explain that, explain exactly how they've experienced it? Well, We lose words there too, don't we? Our forefathers said, "'Tis better felt than telt." But I just need to ask you, do you know something of this communion? Something of sweet communion with God through His Son, by His Spirit? Can you too say, Oh, the riches, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable and unspeakable is this sacred communion. And sweet communion, Lord, with Thee, I constantly abide. My hand Thou holdest in Thy own to keep me near Thy side. It's a blessing to be a Christian. If you don't know these things, my friend, you're missing the greatest joy of life. You're missing communion with the most important persons, may I say it that way, that you could ever have communion with. God the Father, God the Son, And God, the Holy Spirit, blessed are they who can say that this holy God is my best friend who sticks closer than a brother and even closer than a father. He's altogether lovely. And when you commune with him, you've got the best this world can ever offer. And one day, It will be the heartbeat of eternity itself. Amen. Great God of heaven, we thank Thee so much. Holy Father, redeeming Son, sanctifying Spirit, three in one, for who Thou art. And Lord, we pray, help us more and more and more in our lives to commune with Thee as our Father through the dear Son of God by the indwelling Spirit so that our love would grow for Thee in response to Thy perfect love 
to us. Please, Lord, save the lost among us. Show them what they're missing. Show them that this love could also be theirs. And help them to bow before Thee and say, O Lord God, please, please receive me as a poor, hell-worthy sinner through the blood of Jesus the Christ. And teach me experientially in my soul to see thee by faith and to cry out, my Lord and my God. In Jesus' name, amen.